Support for Extra 106.3 comes from Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy, celebrating their 35th anniversary and offering gift cards in-store and online. You can discover Mother's Day and anniversary presents online at Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy at naturalbody.com. Welcome into the Ben Burnett Show. My guest today is Georgia's most powerful lobbyist, Don Bullia. Don, welcome to the show. Ben, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here. You have seen a lot of things happen and transpire in the last 6 to 12 months since the Georgia General Assembly got out of session. You've seen the Georgia legislature get sued over maps that are allegedly discriminatory against people of color or districts that represent people of color. And you have seen them go back into a special session, redraw some maps, second verse, same as the first, or you think that these ones are actually going to hold up and Brian, Governor Brian Kemp and Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones have threaded the needle the right way. What are your thoughts? Uh, you know, I think they handled the entire process quite brilliantly. Uh, so they're still litigating the original lawsuit. Uh, but in the meantime, as a, as a measure, they held a special session and they drew new maps. The, the judge was very prescriptive. Remember, this was an Obama-appointed judge, was very prescriptive in what kind of maps they had to draw. So he had specific numbers they had to get to. And they did a very good job of essentially protecting Republicans, which has been proven through the Supreme Court that that's legal. You can gerrymander for partisan purposes. But then they drew additional minority-majority districts. So it was quite brilliant the way they did it. And uh, the uh, Obama-appointed judge actually approved the new maps. Now, would they be happier with the new maps just to stick their finger in the eye? Or are they going to just they going to hope that they, the original maps hold, hold the test of time after the appeals process is done? Well, for the purposes of this 2024 election— no one can really redraw maps. Uh, if you think about it, uh, qualifying begins in March. Uh, the primaries are in May, and of course the elections are in November. So it's really impossible for you to run on anything but the current maps. And so I think they're going to see how it goes. Uh, there are some people who believe the maps are actually more beneficial than the maps they drew in 2021 for the 2022 elections. So it's very possible that they may actually improve their position as far as numbers, the, the, the general wisdom is the Senate will stay the same. There are some people who believe there are one or two additional House seats that could flip to the Republicans. Uh, it could very well be that they lose a few seats. So I think they're going to see how it goes in the 24 cycle. I don't think there's anyone who thinks the 24 cycle will flip the General Assembly from Republican control to Democrat control. Do you believe in your heart of hearts, that this is just what we do as Americans every 10 year, every ten years in competitive states is just sue people over maps, hope you pick up a couple of seats, or is, is it theater? Is there actually anything to it? I mean, what it frustrates me is a guy who thinks that Governor Kemp and the legislature really do a good job of seeking middle ground a lot with the Democrats. Don't get me wrong. I think they ostracize them when they absolutely have to over some of the really hyper-partisan issues. But I think most of the time, you see Democrats get bills through the legislature in Georgia all the time, probably every single day. Well, it's interesting. The, the most egregious maps, in fact, here's something interesting. Since the 1965 Civil Rights Act was passed, uh, many states, via litigation and other reasons, were under uh, 
federal control of the maps. In other words, they would pass their maps if they had to pass a federal uh, test, and the federal government, the Justice Department, had to review the maps and approve them. So if you think about it, since 1965, there have been five official redistrictings. So you'd have uh, 1970, 1980, 1990, 2000, 2010, and 2020. In all of those cases, if you think about this, it's amazing. Democrats controlled a majority of those maps. They controlled 70, 80, 90, 2000. The Republicans drew it in 2010 and obviously in 2020. In, in all of those cases, the only maps that have been absolutely overturned are the ones drawn by Democrats. In fact, the most egregious one was a map drawn in 2001 when Roy Barnes was governor. And those were absolutely thrown out. In fact, it ended up being a three-judge panel that drew the maps that ultimately gave the Republicans the majority they had. After the 2002 cycle, they won the Senate. In 2004 cycle, they won the House. So it's interesting that the Justice Department, which generally tends to, our, our career attorneys that tend to lean liberal, uh, approved almost every Republican map, and ultimately this one, they, there was a judge that approved it, but the Justice Department didn't approve four previous Democrat-drawn maps. As you look into the 2024 legislative cycle in the state of Georgia, what are some of the key issues that you think affect average people the most? The budget. The budget is the most important thing that we're going to be looking at. Um, the, 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 the state of Georgia is in a really good spot from a budget standpoint. There's $6 billion in the rainy day fund, and there's an excess of $6 billion they get to spend on other stuff. And the biggest thing and the most expensive line item is going to be a tax cut. So your income taxes will go down. Uh, I think that's baked in. I don't think there's any way that's not going to happen. So I think you're going to see in this budget process another tax cut to the tune of a billion dollars. That's on top of the billion dollars you saw in the last cycle, last um, general assembly cycle, and a billion dollars you saw before that. So this is $3 billion in permanent cuts over the last three years. So that, that, those, those are real numbers. When you look, I know Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones ran for office on eliminating the state income tax. I understand that there are politics that go into everything, and that is great politics. Is it theoretically possible in the state of Georgia, given the growth we've seen, for the state income tax to ultimately go away, or is that still just good politicians making good promises? I mean, it's theoretically possible, but it's very, very difficult. And and the problem is that we have border states, Tennessee and Florida, that have zero income taxes. In North Carolina, it's closer to 3%, I believe. So we're competing against these folks for, for employees, for companies to move here, and it all does factor in. Uh, the problem is, is that, you know, I compare our tax code to making chili or making spaghetti sauce. You know, when you start off that process, you kind of start the same. You've got the beef, you've got the tomatoes, you've got some of the same ingredients. But once you make the decision to make chili or to make spaghetti, it's really hard to go back into one or the other. And that's where our tax code is. And the problem is is that our income taxes generate such a large proportion. Our sales tax would have to go up. The other thing is that by having a blended tax structure, we really have better revenue uh, uh, um, expectations. So in, in a down economy, you might see sales tax revenue go down, but generally income taxes will stay stable for some time until unemployment gets very, very high. 
And so you have a much more stable, blended, and it would be no different than when, when you're investing in your 401k. You don't tell your invest your, uh, your, your broker or your investment advisor, I want to do 100% Bitcoin. You say, let's blend this thing out. Let's do some safe stuff and let's do some stuff that's a little risky. And so that's what the tax code is. What other avenues? I've heard, I've heard it talk. I was on the radio and some other stations earlier this week talking. Gambling comes up in the state of Georgia all the time. I won't say it falls further and further behind because I'm not much of a gambler. I know you love to gamble. I know, I know you'd sit there and probably push the bill for free. What is the thought process going into that this go around? And are they going to have to be able to find enough support to bring a constitutional amendment together? You know, I think the conventional wisdom is it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Uh, you know, there's so many states that allow sports betting. We're one of the few states. And quite frankly, creating a geofence around Georgia that doesn't allow you to sports bet just really creates uh, an incentive for folks to open accounts in other states or travel or whatnot. And the numbers aren't compelling from a revenue standpoint. So if you did full casino gambling, gambling, I've heard anywhere from 300 to $400 million in additional revenue, which sounds like a lot, except when you consider the state budget is hovering around $33, $34 billion just from state revenue, not counting federal revenue. So it doesn't necessarily move the needle, but it could move the needle on specific things. Sports gambling, I've heard anywhere from 60 to $100 million in new revenue in the state. Uh, at the end of the day, I think we do have to consider that people are doing it anyway. We do allow a form of gambling in the lottery, so it's not like we're a non-gambling state. And I do think that all the polls shows that if it were ever to go on the ballot, it would pass overwhelmingly. So I do think there's some momentum for sports gambling. You do see the Braves, the Hawks, the Falcons, all the major sports folks understand that it's the key to keeping eyes glued to those screen. It's what keeps interest in games when there's no other reason to be interested. I saw an email today that said, if I know any state legislators that are actively pushing casino gaming or sports gaming, please send them to 680 The Fan because they want to talk about it and put the issue out there because of the tens of thousands of people that are listening to that station every single second, plenty of them would love to go bet against the Falcons. Absolutely. What, other, what are some of the hyper-partisan issues that you think are going to be coming down the pike this year? Obviously, school choice has seen a pass a time or two. I actually think that this is probably the year where they pass some version of a school choice bill. Governor Brian Kemp has been very supportive of it. You don't see him come out of the ivory tower a lot at the last minute to try to negotiate and get a deal done, and you saw that the last time through, which means there are probably some people, if they vote against it this time, are going to wind up on the naughty list. What do you think that bill looks like, ultimately, from our good friend in Forsyth County, Senator Greg Dolezal? So uh, Senator, Senator Dolezal is a great friend, and he's very a very thoughtful legislator, and I think he's really thought through this process very well. I think, ultimately, the problem for the folks that are pro-voucher is the math. The math is tough when you think about a lot of Republican legislators live in rural parts of the states, and there are just no private schools to go to, or very few. And so the options are so limited that they don't get the benefit of it. And they like their school districts. You know, if you look and you go to rural Georgia, they're the beneficiary of what we call the five mil share. And what happens is every county or every school district contributes five mils of all their property taxes to the state. And the state redistributes it to the districts that need it most, which is fair. You do want to have a very fair system of education. Someone in 
uh, one part of the state should be getting as close an education as they can to another part, and that's the right thing to do. Uh, but if you're in rural Georgia, you might see your, your, um, your school property taxes at 14 mils. If you live in DeKalb County, it's 23 or 24 mils. So it's a big difference. They get to keep low property taxes. Uh, they don't have this option of going to private schools because they don't exist in many of these rural systems. So what's the benefit if I'm a Republican legislator when I have a system, a school district that you like, that you like the superintendent, you like the teachers? Uh, they may be your biggest employer, by the way, in that in particular county. So the, the math is tough for the vouchers to get done this year. So ultimately, you're, if you're a betting man, you're saying that the school the school choice bill and the voucher bill that Senator Dolezal's put forward in subsequent or in previous years probably still doesn't have much of a shot. I think it's uh, in particularly in the House. I think it's going to be a very difficult um, road to hoe when you consider the math of rural legislators, several of which who've voted against it previously and have indicated though they they continue to plan to vote against it. What else is out there that you think is interesting? I hear a lot from our friends over at the Georgia Chamber that they want to attack workforce housing. Not that they want to actually attack workforce housing, but they want to be able to put forward a different set of standards for building materials in certain municipalities, counties, all in the name of, look, we've got all these automobile manufacturers coming to South Georgia. We need these people to have somewhere that's affordable to work. To me, having, being somebody who's set in locally elected office, the thought of the General Assembly getting involved in anything that has to do with design standards to nice communities, and if you were in the extra 106.3 listening audience, I hate to break it to you, you are the nice communities that, that the General Assembly is targeting. So be careful, because everything you see in the Hallmark lights and on the billboards, all that glitters isn't gold. I, I think you're exactly right from the standpoint that you know, going about it using design standards as a way to get to affordable housing is a ruse. It's, it's a farce. If you look at all the design standards you could mandate or take away from local governments from the standpoint of, let's say they ban vinyl siding, that's not going to move the needle on a home. All, if you, you, literally, all those design standards at most might move 5% of the cost of a home. It's land acquisition. It's the cost of borrowing the money. All those things are barriers. It's the down payment, that first down, pay, you know, the down payment you have to make. All those things are real barriers. So the solution really comes in a, a couple of forms. One, you have to encourage the market to build more. And this is an interesting statistic. Atlanta this year in the last census count actually saw their homeless population drop 21%. And that's directly related to the ability for people to get affordable housing versus the West Coast where you see L.A., Seattle, San Francisco with out-of-control homelessness. It's because they don't have good housing stock available. We do. We actually do have good housing stock available, generally speaking, compared to other markets. So design standards aren't going to move the needle. The things that could move the needle are helping people get that down payment. Let's look at other things like squatters. It's a real problem with people who are squatting in homes that are available for rent they're taking up to 5% of all the product off the market. They're bringing crime into your neighborhoods. And it's very, very difficult to remove these squatters. And I'm sure you've seen many, many articles about it. So if the General Assembly wants to attack the issue, I think you can immediately free up 4 to 5% of all the housing stock that squatters are in and put that back on the, on the, on the open market. That alone will move the needle. 
As you look, one of the concerns that I have every time, and listen, I'm grateful for every penny that I get to save when you look at the income tax reduction. As I drive down Georgia 400, or I drive around I-285, and I look at the state routes, and I pay attention to this, like I said, as somebody who's sat in local government, you know what people in nice places don't like doing? Buying tires because they had to run over a pothole for the 15th time. And for consecutive years in a row, I have put new tires on my vehicle. Do I care about saving one-tenth of 1% on my state income taxes? Or do I want to not have to buy $1,500 worth of new tires? And it is known that Georgia underfunds its infrastructure because, candidly, most places in America have no choice but to underfund infrastructure because there's only a finite amount of capital. But every time you cheer for a tax cut, I want you to know that until everything is done, something is getting left off. If I had a criticism of the Kemp administration, and I cannot say that I have, I mean, I'm reaching when I say that I'm looking for a criticism of an administration, I believe the man would own that one. Do you ultimately think that infrastructure in the state of Georgia beyond the port, the nuts and bolts of government, do you think that that comes front and center with his budget as some of these municipalities have seen 40% increases in asphalt over three or four years? Because the quality is not there. And not all of that is any one person's fault. But what do you think they plan to do to address infrastructure needs? That's a great, great question and great point. Uh, I do think, and recently I think you heard Russell McMurray, the the DOT commissioner say that there's $91 billion in needs, $91 billion. That's a big number. It's a huge number. And even if you took every dollar in your surplus, you would need that for about 20 years. The governor this week during the Eggs and Eschews breakfast the chamber sponsors every year announced some additional dollars for infrastructure, and specifically in LMIG money, which is local grant money, which is great because jurisdictions can pull down this LMIG money and use it for almost anything they want. It goes straight to local cities and counties. That's a great source of money. So he announced, uh, I believe it was a doubling of the LMIG money. He also announced that all of the dollars that uh, he uh, took uh, took away from GDOT when he did the tax cut or removed the um, the excise tax on on gasoline, he would make up for in and this he has. cycle. Yeah. So I, I think it is a priority. I think it's going to have to continue to be a priority. I think ultimately what we're really going to have to answer is what do we do when EVs, electric vehicles, constitute a 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 percent of the vehicles on the road. And in, in, in Metro Atlanta, that is 100. In the next two decades, that will happen. And we do have to decide how we're going to tax that. Now, I own an electric vehicle. I pay over $200 a year in a tag tax that most ICE vehicles, uh, in internal combustion engine vehicles, don't have to pay. And that's generally going to equal what you pay in excise taxes over the course of a year. Believe it or not, you probably only pay about $150 a year in excise taxes if you drive about 12,000 miles a year. That's shocking to most people. That being said, uh, with the infrastructure needs, I think we have to look at how we tax electric vehicles. I think we have to look at how we tax even the, the, the existing ICE vehicles and, and re, rethink how all that works because at some point we're going to have to pay a big bill. So you are a student of the game in the meritocracy of federalism around the United States of America. If Georgia had the opportunity to plagiarize ideas that another state was doing or has done, 
What do you see that's been done in some conservative-leaning states over the course of the last year that you're like, man, we ought to bring something like this front and center here? You've heard about, obviously, we've talked about Obamacare, and you've t- we, we know that Georgia is one of the states that never had full expansion of Medicaid. And there were a lot of reasons for that, and I think the reasons were solid fiscal governance. But that being said, I think that what Arkansas did was absolutely brilliant. And I think they're looking at the Arkansas model, as they call it. Basically, it's an expansion, but we're allowing the private sector to be involved. Instead of selling products from the government, we're allowing the private sector to use those dollars to sell directly to uh, policyholders. So the Arkansas model basically has an expansion, but it's just using the private sector to make it work versus a government solution. So I think that's one of the things that we're going to see the General Assembly take a serious look at. They call it the Arkansas model, and it's a form of expansion, but really it's a form to make, to make sure that a lot of low-income Georgians have access to quality health care. I give Governor Sanders a lot of credit for being willing to take arrows and bullets every single day as the press secretary for former President Donald Trump and maybe subsequent President Donald Trump. But if there was one thing that she learned there that she had the opportunity to come back and implement was that she's got to see the way that all bad decisions, even the ones on our side, had the opportunity to make. And I think the way that she threaded the needle, and I still don't love it. I don't like that it's the law of the land. Me laying down and being saying I agree with you is me fundamentally dying inside just a little bit. It's like accepting COVID dollars as a municipality. I was like, in a couple of years, this is going to make it worse. As you look and you unpack what's out there, you know, we've talked about renewable energy and we've talked about Georgia's commitment to being the buckle of the battery belt, as my friend Chris Clark loves to say. See, we say bad things about affordable housing, and then we'll, we'll, we'll prop him up a little bit and say some nice things. What do you see as Georgia has made such a strategic investment in this industry in a right-to-work state, which I think is a massive good decision by several administrations, including Roy Barnes, all the way back, both sides of the aisle. You know, Governor Deal did a lot. Governor Kemp has continued. The Port of Savannah is very strategic for offloading trade and transportation. I think Georgia is as well-positioned as anybody on the East Coast as a right-to-work state the exceptions of our friends in Florida, probably. But what do you see around renewable energy that's taking place? Because you're seeing states out west that are conservatively led, realizing that they have an abundance of resources of solar and wind. And granted, we don't have all of that. Do you think that Georgia continues down the path that it has gone on with Q-cells and solar? Do you think that there's another industry or another way that they're going to try to unpack and steal business away from California and the West Coast and the Northeast and show you there's a better way to do it? Absolutely. And, and I think you'll be surprised to learn how progressive and how aggressive the Public Service Commission has been on alternative energy and renewable energies. Uh, you know, I think what California has done wrong is do these false mandates of requiring X percent of renewable energy from their, from their energy providers. And what's happened is is that they have rolling blackouts and other issues that end up buying really dirty energy from neighboring states. Most people will be shocked to learn that I believe Georgia Power only has one last coal burning plant and it's due to close soon. So we'll be, Georgia Power will have no coal burning plants. Where I will fault Georgia Power is that they are, they fought pretty hard to limit the net metering program. If you know what that is, that means if you put up solar panels on your house and you've got batteries, 
uh, you can enter a program uh, and they limit it to 5,000 and you can sell the energy, excess energy back to Georgia Power. Georgia Power has fought to keep that program small. In fact, it's closed out. I was one of the last few people. I have, a, I have solar panels and I have backup batteries. I'm one of the few people in the net metering program. Members of the Public Service Commission, including Tim Equals and, and Bubba McDonald and others, have pushed hard to expand that to 250, maybe 500,000 people. That's the way we get there. I think when you create an environment where people want to put up panels, want to have alternative energy, uh, renewable energy right at their own home, you've got many power plants over, uh, over the whole state, then you've secured the grid. Then you've encouraged the, the, the manufacturers to come here and locate here because if we're buying the panels and, and putting them up locally, they're going to want to locate here. So I do think there are some great places for us to grow. All right, Don, I've got a question for you. And a lot of people think that I'm a lawyer and I am not. I have read in recent weeks that Governor Kemp really wants to take the 2024 legislative session and go after tort reform. First, what does that mean? And two, what does he ultimately want to change? Well, we haven't seen the legislation that, that he wants to put forth, but he's taken it very, very seriously. I think it's one of the most important things he wants to do in his second term. And the really good news for him is that he's got the other two key folks on board. Uh, Speaker John Burns is fully on board, and Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones understands the importance of it. While Georgia has continually been ranked the number one place to do business, the one place where we could lose that ranking is that we've been named one of the legal hellholes in the country. We are a hotspot for litigation. And if you look at just a few examples, uh, if you're an OBGYN in North Carolina, you pay half the medical malpractice insurance that you pay in Georgia. So where are you going to go right, when, you're, when you're done with your residency? Someplace where it's cheaper to, to practice medicine? That has plenty of nice towns. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I've seen it over and over again that physicians are having trouble, especially in rural Georgia, recruiting doctors because it is so litigious. And the rules are so stacked against the defendants in this case. And something has to be done, whether it's premise liability issues. You've heard of probably the CVS case where uh, two, two, uh, two people went onto a CVS parking lot to do an eBay exchange. One shot the other. And surprisingly, they sued CVS. And they won $140 million. Yeah, it seems wrong. But the problem is that juries sort of see it as, oh, it's just a big company. It's a faceless company. I'm giving someone millions of dollars. But the rules we put in place make it so much easier for the trial lawyers to succeed. And we have to change those rules. And hopefully, with this confluence of the, the big three, the governor, lieutenant governor, speaker, all on board, I think we can make some big changes. What's the biggest change that you've seen? I know you were a very, very good and loyal friend to Speaker David Ralston. For many, many years. What's the biggest difference that you see dealing with uh, new, I won't say new, he's been there a year now, Speaker of the House, John Burns? You know, and this is not at all a criticism of my dear, dear friend, Speaker Ralston. John Burns just has an energy about him. He has this fantastic excitement about him. I think people genuinely love to be around him. He has this sense of wanting to get uh, his agenda done in a very thoughtful way. And not that Ralston wasn't doing that, but after 12 years, it, you know, you, you, you may have accomplished many of the things you've wanted to. And John Burns just has these great, exciting ideas. So it's great to be around him. 
What's the average tenure of a Georgia State House member at this point? Back of the napkin math, I'd say about 10 years. I mean, people really perceive, you know, that these legislators stick around for 30, 40, 50 years. There's not a single legislator in the Senate that's been around, except for two, that's been around for more than 20 years. I've been at the Capitol doing this. This is my 29th session. I have been around longer than 95% of the legislators there. Well, in fairness to them, like 29 years as an elected official in the same post is ridiculous. <laughs> when, you, when you look, I, I want to talk about the certificate of need. I know you have a very, very good relationship with a lot of the healthcare practices, and I know you have a very thorough knowledge of the industry in general. Is what Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones is after with the repeal of the CON laws or modifications to the CON laws that will be billed as a repeal. What do you ultimately think happens, and, and how afraid should Wellstar, Northside, and Emory ultimately be over the issue? You know, I, I think the momentum is with Lieutenant Governor. Uh, at the end of the day, change is in order. Uh, it's an antiquated system, and I think the irony is as those, self, as those health systems grow, and they're growing rapidly, as they acquire other systems, other hospitals, they're realizing that the very CON laws that they have been protecting are now prohibiting them from growing the system the way they want to. And so I think the, 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 the push from a lot of the, the hospitals to prevent um, you know, a repeal of CON is feigning a little bit. It's not necessarily in their interest to do that. And I think what you've seen in a few years ago in 2008, I believe it was, we passed a, a law to allow these ambulatory surgery centers, which has been a great thing because the success rate uh, at an AmSurge center is much higher than it is at a hospital. And so what you've seen is people realize healthcare can be provided at a very localized level for less cost with better results. And in many cases, you can't provide those health uh, ambulatory surgery centers, at least more than what we currently have under the current statute, and, and have multi-specialty centers without a change in certificate of need. Don, let's talk about tax credits. Everybody wants to save some money. What are the industries in 2024 that you think are going to seek subsidies, seek some favorable treatment from the Georgia General Assembly? What are some of those ideas coming forward, and what do you think ultimately gets done? So in the House and Senate, they took a very long look at it in uh, all of 2023. So they spent the year doing something called a study committee. So Ways and Means Chairman Shaw Blackman and Finance Committee um, Chairman in the Senate, uh, Chuck Hufseller, spent many, many hours interviewing dozens upon dozens of industry leaders that got tax or getting tax credits to find out, are they still working? Does it make sense? Should we repeal some of these credits? Obviously, the one that people talk about the most is the movie tax credit. It's significant. It's, I think, to the magnitude of $1.5 billion. It's obviously made Georgia the number one place to make movies in the world. It really is. I mean, they're doing, they're, they're, we're expanding to the point where we will have more uh, sound stages than L.A. in the next decade. Where are some of the places in the state of Georgia that you think are most primed to take advantage of the tax credits to the movie industry? I think you'll be surprised at some of the locations that are benefiting. As an example, the city of Fayetteville and Fayette County are benefiting extremely well from what, uh, what was Pinewood Studios and is now Trillith, uh, what their expansion is doing for that community. They're building incredible housing. They're having... It's wild, dude. Yeah. It's, it's like the, it's, it, 
it reminds me of the field of dreams when you drive upon it. Yeah. Like it's farms, 1950, 1960, 1970 ranch houses, and then you drive into like the Truman Show. It, it has this feel of like 30A kind of with movie studios after movie. It's just crazy. It's like Avalon, but like with Marvel Studios. Right, and they're building housing stock that's actually affordable. It's, it's amazing. And there's a ton of it. Yeah. And, and I think what, what you'll be surprised about are things like they, they spend $6 million a year on carpenters and wood products because they have to build and take down sets all the time. So the, the, the ag industry benefits. They're buying a lot of that uh, wood product from Georgia companies that are milling it and making it right here in Georgia. So a lot of different industries are benefiting from these movie studios. So it's hard to always calculate it, and sometimes people overblow what the, what the real valuation is. But when you look at what's happening in Fayette, Fayette County, DeKalb, and other places all over the state, you're Savannah. looking at growth. Savannah, and tremendous growth. And these are folks that aren't necessarily – this isn't the talent. This isn't the, the A-listers that, that live here. They don't live here. They just come, they do the movies, they leave. But people who do live here are people doing lighting – and sound, and the fact that Georgia State and other other places are having a f- tremendous growth in their film program because kids realize that there's a real career they can have. Oh, it's crazy! It, you look at the largest data center in 2023 that got CO'd in the world was Q- by QTS data centers was a 250 megawatt facility in Fayetteville. <laughs> The amount of internet, and this is what I don't think people understand. Like this, that's the 21st century interstate system. And to see somebody like it is football field after football field after football field. And those companies locate there because there's such a tremendous amount of data use and internet connectivity. It benefits so many people that live really in the entire Southeast by defraying the cost when they go run fiber and make upgrades to other places because those companies reinvest all the dollars because those carriers go reinvest all the dollars because they don't want to pay taxes either. It's fascinating to see. One of the things I've heard about, Don, is that there's support in the Georgia Senate to get rid of DEI statements for university hiring. Now, we are on the heels of some bad blunders from some Ivy League schools in front of Congress who you know, those university presidents may have all the degrees. They didn't have enough common sense to sit there and be willing to condemn people that were, they didn't have enough common sense to condemn individuals that were participating in terrorism of residents of a sovereign country, and it has cost some of them their jobs. And on the heels of that, so much gets woven into the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation that I really think has seen its best days, and I mean best days pretty loosely, in, in my mind, all it did was ultimately sow division and take away from the idea of meritocracy in America. Do you believe that ultimately getting rid of the DEI statements in university hiring is the right thing for the state of Georgia to do? Or do you think they're going to leave a little bit in there just in case the tide ever changes in another direction? Well, you know, I can't speak to the future, but what I can say is that Chancellor Sonny Perdue, former Governor Sonny Perdue, is doing an amazing job of trying to refocus what their mission should be. And I don't think the mission, sh- at least in his view, is going to be DE&I, inclusion-type policies. The other thing you've got is that it's in Georgia's Constitution, the General Assembly cannot tell the university system what to do. 
They cannot dictate their curriculum. They're very limited in that aspect, but they have one giant hammer, and it's the budget. And ultimately, if these universities don't realize what that means, they're going to start losing money. And if you saw it um, uh, when they cut roughly $125 million from uh, the higher ed budget last year, and if they don't respond, I think that's if you've only got one hammer, you're going to keep using that hammer. So I think that's that's a big piece of it. It's a pretty good hammer to have. Yeah, it's very powerful, and and I think that they're they're very serious about it. And I think if you look at this is a great example. I don't know if you understand or heard about something called the science of reading. It's basically taking literacy back to a sort of its fundamentals. There was a time period where especially the universities were pushing their teaching colleges towards unproven methods of teaching, reading, and writing. And what you saw is a huge drop in literacy. And now you're seeing this push. They call it the, the Mississippi miracle because several years ago, Mississippi applied the science of reading and, and saw huge, huge gains. And that was tremendous. So George is doing some of that. Fulton County Schools, as an example, has done an amazing job, really doing real fidelity to the science of reading. And what you've seen is huge gains, highest graduation rate ever. And I think you're going to see Georgia put a lot of money in the science of reading. And why I say, oh, I'm going with this is that the university system has done a poor job of teaching teachers how to teach literacy, how to teach reading and writing. And by going away from proven methods that have worked for decades, uh, I think what, you, what you're going to see is the General Assembly is going to say to them, if you don't teach the science of reading, you will lose money, period. And they're going to use that hammer. So I, you know, I equate to some degree some of these progressive teaching methods to other things that are against the core of what the university system ought to be doing. And I think that's where the General Assembly is really going to stick, uh, uh, put, it, put, a, put a stand on the ground. So I was on WABE early last week with Theron Johnson, who uh, I know is a friend of yours, known, known him for a long time. He's worked for the Biden administration. He's worked for a ton of very prominent Democrats. He's one of the guys, if you want to get something done in the state of Georgia nationally, that you would call if you were on the left. That doesn't make him a bad guy. That makes him a capitalist. And we had a conversation about gambling. And the question that he posed to me, I'm usually pretty good about asking myself the second or third question. And he said, well, Ben, let me ask you this. If they're going to get sports gaming done, and I agree with you, does that benefit Democrats? And when would Republicans want it on the ballot? And I always like people that can play the chess game. Like, I'm a, I can play the chess game. If you sent me an elected office, I could do something to benefit a, a, hand, a person, a group, whatever. That doesn't make me evil. People who didn't like the fact that I knew how to do it, they, they may have felt like it was evil. But I was very good at the intended or unintended consequences of finding an angle and pursuing that. Still am. And I thought, that's interesting because he said, I think it ultimately helps Democrats because more Democrats are going to be likely sports betters. And I was like, well, so let me ask you this question, Theron. If Brian Kemp is not in favor of sports gaming and ultimately signs a bill because two-thirds of a constitutional majority was in favor of it, he gets the opportunity to run in a United States Senate general election for all intensive purposes and say, I didn't like this, but I let you choose. And that is the governor that I have always been. I left the freedom, I left the conversation around personal freedom up to the individual responsibility of said individual. How does that possibly benefit a Democrat? 
And I said, in the same way, I said, Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones has been very in favor of a lot more gambling than you will hear Governor Brian Kemp be in favor of. None of that, all of that pulls on you. None of that pulls on me at all. We're probably both likely yes votes on sports gaming or casino gambling. I really don't care. And I thought, if Burt Jones was the guy who really drove that in the LG and he runs for governor and Chris Carr runs for governor and Kelly Leffler runs for governor and we know all of them and you know we like all of them they're all good people and I told Theron I said if Burt Jones if that is an issue in a 2026 governor's race Burt Jones is the only individual who has the opportunity to walk around the state of Georgia and say Chris Carr will tell you that he was in favor of sports gaming I did it and Chris didn't. And if that is an issue to Republican voters, and I believe it would ultimately be a big issue to Republican voters in a governor's race, do you think that that is a shape-shifting landscape thing where they would play politics with the date to put it on the ballot? I know we're in the weeds, but that's what we do. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I think that you're going to want to put it on the ballot when it, when it benefits you the most. Also, if I were a lieutenant governor or if I were the governor, I'd also want the revenue. So the sooner you do it, the sooner you can go ahead and start benefiting from the revenue. So if you do full casino gambling and you're getting $300 million a year, you can spend a lot of money on rural hospitals. You can spend a lot of money to shore up the, the, the um, college funds. You can do a lot of things with $300 million. And so it does give them uh, money to play with. And if, even if you did sports betting, it was 60 to $100 million. You can put that in places you want to you benefit. So you can, as you say, you're opposed to it. The voters picked it, but you get to spend the money. As you look at 2026, and in full disclosure, we stepped away for a second. Don was like, I don't know. You want to talk about 2026? I was like, that will affect you a lot more than it will me. They'll all come on my show. As you look, what do you think that field ultimately looks like? Do you think it's the three people I just outlined running for governor? you think there's a fourth or a fifth? I think there always will be several other folks. that Somebody from Congress. Absolutely. But I think the, the wild card there is there if Governor Kemp chooses to simply go to the private sector and work, uh, I think that uh, Senator Leffler would run for the Senate. Um, and she could probably clear the field pretty quickly. Uh, and I think she's going to defer to Governor Kemp before, before making that decision. So I think that does clear the field. Um, uh, and then it would be a car, uh, Burt Jones, like you said, maybe a member of Congress. I think you're always going to see some wild cards want to run. You might see someone very far right run as well. So um, They're not going to out far right Burt Jones with the Donald Trump endorsement. Right. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. <laughs> That's Absolutely. not going to happen. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. I, you know, I've, I've been asked the question a lot, and I like both of them. And I would, I would stay – I'm the guy who would donate money after it was over on the last day it was over and was like, look, I sit on the radio. Like, I didn't want to create a huge conflict. I didn't want anybody to be mad at me. And they'd all understand. But when you look, do you think that – do you think Senator Leffler is capable of I, – I think she's beatable. And he, I, I think she can have all the money in the world. I think she's beatable in a Republican Senate primary because she has – what was the last race she ran? Well, obviously the race she lost. And she's done a lot of work. But I would sit here and say this. If you have 50 or $60 million and you can't get it done, people remember that. Well, in her defense, what I will say in that situation, because it was a special, she was running in a jungle general election. So she was on the ballot with Warnock, 
with Doug Collins, with what uh, roughly a dozen candidates. And because she had to run with a Republican, a prominent Republican Very. on the ballot, she could never run to the middle. Whereas Warnock never had a glove laid on him until after the uh, general election and only during the runoff. And he never had to run to the left to get the nomination and then run to the, it, then he could simply run to the center the entire time. So he did play a left, uh, you know, center left campaign. She had to run a far right campaign all the way to November. And then she had to completely uh, jump over in an eight week runoff. So in all fairness, uh, I think that her performance isn't necessarily reflective of her ability. It was reflective of being in a jungle a special election that forced her in, a, in, a, in an election with both parties. And really, no one ran with the party uh, name next to them. So she had a lot of problems with just the fundamental nature of that type of election. So I don't think it's a true reflection of what she's capable of. And as you mentioned, she's done a lot of work since then. She's spent a lot of time. Tons of in grassroots the field. miles. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I'll say this. If Donald Trump is the president of the United States and there is somebody in that United States Senate primary that he likes, it ain't going to be her. I don't think it is. I think that if he had the opportunity to sit there and support Doug Collins like he wanted to do, I think that that would have carried a tremendous different weight in the first round, totally. And he had to sit out because his name was on the ballot. His name's not going to be on the. His name is not going to be on the ballot in 2026. And I do not care for the man. In the least. If you listen to my show at all, I am very consistently ready to move on from Donald Trump. But I will tell you, if there is somebody that he likes, I don't think he's going to be afraid to wade into it. And, and, but do remember that he did that in the uh, 22 elections, and it yielded a 30% versus 70%. But, but Georgia was a different place, and it will be a different place in 2026. And Doug Collins, I know you listen to me. I think you ought to take the swing if you're going to do it. <laughs> And Doug Collins, I know you're listening to me. I think you ought to take the swing. I still love you, buddy. <laughs> Don, it's been great to sit down and talk with you, man. I always enjoy it. You got to weave around some cones a little bit more than I do. I can weave. If you were a lobbyist that was out of the game, I could just weave you into all kinds of batshit crazy conversations. I always appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. It's a fantastic show, and I love listening to you. Thank you, man. It's been another episode of The Ben Burnett Show. We'll see you guys next week. Spring is here and baseball is back. You can't forget the Derby. I love the hats. Do you have yours yet? My hat? I treated myself to a whole outfit. If you want to be able to treat yourself, then you should check out the Nest Savings Account at LGE Community Credit Union, where they want you to reach your savings goals faster. Take it from a pair of 680 The Fan wives. Head to lgeccu.org to find out what makes their team number one in Georgia. Support for Extra 106.3 comes from Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy, celebrating their 35th anniversary and offering gift cards in-store and online. You can discover Mother's Day and anniversary presents online at Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy at naturalbody.com. Hey, sandwich lovers. Today's your lucky day. There's a whole new way to roll for lunch or dinner delight with Nucky's Hoagies in the Roswell Corners Shopping Center. Now open. Nucky's Hoagies in Roswell is family owned and operated by the subsisters, Stacy and Shannon, whose love language is food and Nucky's Hoagies, their passion. When you bite into a Nucky's Hoagie, you'll taste the difference. The softest hoagie rolls ever, along with hunger-quenching sandwich combinations. 
Make Nucky's Hoagies in Roswell on Woodstock Road your new favorite spot for lunch or dinner.